Hey all you nature nerds, this is You're Gonna Die Out There. Welcome back, nature nerds. I'm Jen, and uh, across from me is Megan. We're ready to um, share some stories of peril and nature and stuff. I just wanted to mention that it's almost one year since we started this lovely You're Gonna Die Out There podcast. Happy birthday. That's crazy. We're so much more professional now. (laughs) Truly. There's so many things that we set out to do that we haven't done yet. Oh, yeah. There's a long list. There's a long list. The artisans page. It's coming. coming. Well, that, this it's our, coming. that's at the top of our list. Yeah. Some of the other stuff got pushed down. But yeah, congratulations on one year, Megan. Thank you for Thank all you. that you've Thank done. Thank you. Happy um, one year anniversary. I don't yeah, know. Is I it guess. an anniversary? Is it a birthday? Who knows? But we appreciate everybody who stuck with us and um, continue to listen. We're going to keep trying to find some of these crazy stories and share them with you and some science newsies. Thanks to all of our patrons. Yes. Yeah, so we do have one patron to shout out at the end of this episode. Yes. So stick around. So that'll be fun. Megan, I have some science news. I'm ready. Let's hear your science news. It's actually, there's a couple of things. I was watching the news like I do, mostly because my husband turns it on every day and watches it. (laughs) (laughs) I think there's a difference between, like, I grew up watching the news, so I'm not really into watching the news. Agreed. But he did not grow up with a TV or watching the news ever. So he watches it because it's really interesting to him. And I'm just like, what? When 24-hour news cycle started, that's when I was like, I'm out. Yeah. But one thing I did, you know, I have kept up with is all the wildfires everywhere. So we know they had that one in Boulder, Colorado, that really took out a lot of people's houses. And actually, we have a coworker that is there. And I was talking to her. She's based there, right? Mm -hmm. And she was saying that, yeah, luckily, they were okay. They're close by, but not within that area. But I know that was really devastating. And she said it was just like really strong winds that made it burn so quickly. Another recent one was the one that is very close to Big Sur. They were actually able to stop it before it hit the actual park. And they say that it's going to be contained. But they were confused because they're like, it's the winter and there's usually not fires like this. Right. But I think it's also a lot of winds are happening in Mm -hmm. places. And I believe it was that one that they found somebody had what's maybe doing some burning because it's winter Mm. and they were burning some brush or something and there were some embers that jumped and then it spread. I was thinking every time we turn on the news or some fire somewhere that's devastating the forests and people's houses. And so I wanted to quickly do a science news on that. Yeah. So I was just trying to get some information on like what's the deal is it climate change is it different factors coming in i found an article that was pretty interesting in the world economic forum titled why are wildfires getting worse these scientists explain that sounds like the perfect uh, article and it's to recent your question. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah exactly it's like thank you google <laughs> this is uh from august of 2021 so pretty mm-hmm. recent and it was written by Susan Pritchard. She's a research scientist of the forest ecology at the University of Washington. And another person from the University of Washington, I'm sure they work together, Kayla Hagman, affiliate associate professor. The summer wildfire season, this is over the last 30 years, they're seeing the 40 to 80 days longer than average for this wildfire season. 
There's actually two factors, which is climate change, of course. And the other one is a history of fighting fires, like stopping fires that maybe should happen. Oh, yeah. Is leading to more brush, providing more fuel for these more extreme wildfires. Yeah, I remember kind of reading about something a while back uh, when a friend of mine who had just moved to California, it was that campfire. She lived very close by in California, like devastating fires. Yeah. And they were talking about how it used to be in that area, native peoples would regularly burn to keep the fuel at a lower level. And Mm -hmm. because the Forest Service, whoever is managing the forests are not doing that or trying to prevent forest fires that might actually be necessary for that landscape. I mean, it's just like Georgia. You got to burn the pine forest. They, mm-hmm. they regularly burn, like naturally. Right. So yeah, that's oh. pretty much my whole science news, Megan. <laughs> Do you want to say it? I'll just cut all my stuff out. No, no, no. Are they saying that they're going to start managing that fuel? Okay, well, let me just tell you yeah, tell my me. science news. Tell me your science my news. God. <laughs> she's all jazzed up this morning. Okay, so anyway, climate change um, obviously is a big part because mm-hmm. the annual droughts are more pronounced, right? Yeah, we kind of yeah. know that that's happening. It's giving more opportunities. You got more people living in these areas. Mm-hmm. And so they're goofing around and doing stupid shit. And they cause fires, sometimes intentionally, sometimes, most of the time not, I hope. Like when they have a uh, baby gender reveal parties. Oh my god! <laughs> Poor. I mean, you know, they were really just trying to do that their thing. Was unfortunate. Listen, it doesn't matter the gender of your baby. Just have That's your baby. Cute. Yeah, just have it. Have a party. Get a lot of stuff. Greens, yellows, browns, grays. All doesn't matter. Let's get away from this. Yeah, gender, gender reveal. business. Yeah. Oh, sorry. You took the soapbox and you were like, just hold on one second. Listen. Listen. <laughs> Okay, where was I? Extreme weather events. And then you have more dry fuels. So there's like lightning storms, strong mm. winds, all those things come together. Like a tinderbox. <laughs> it's a tinderbox. <laughs> and this was something that they saw during these bootleg fire burning in Oregon and these other record setting fires in Colorado and Col- Colorado, California and Colorado in 2020. A perfect storm of everything that needed to be there to start these big fires. What you were saying, a lack of fires in the Western landscapes has contributed. Like you said, with those brush and dead trees, it builds up. You're just asking for it. I want to give a big shout out to all these people who fight wildfires. Yes. And deal with this because, Mm. I mean, this is by no means saying that anybody was doing it. I mean, they're trying to prevent fires because that's what Smokey says. Foresters and people understanding how to manage forests and mm-hmm. fires. I mean, it's it's hard. It's a lot of work. And so big shout out to all these people who are trying to figure this out. Basically, they're saying in the past, indigenous burning practices, you know, you know they enhance like culture resources and wildlife habitat, but they also cut back on the amount of connectedness of fuel because they would burn patches. And then there was the natural lightning ignitions that would happen at the mm-hmm. same time. And so they kind of added made these fire breaks yeah, right like their own mm-hmm. naturally occurring kind of fire break right areas. and it was yeah. managed really well that way but since then it seems that in the u.s and canada they're trying to suppress all but two to three percent of wildfire starts but that small percentage of fire burns 
you know, at the height of each fire season. So basically, like they're preventing everything, but these small percentages get really out of hand. Unintentionally, by focusing on these short-term risks of wildfires, they're predisposing forests to burn worse. Hotter. Hotter and bigger over time. And because of this, it's jeopardized the forest biodiversity and kind of taken out that indigenous practice. So it even changes like the quality of water, the stability of carbon stores, um, everything, air quality, it's all jeopardized because things aren't happening regularly and naturally. A lot of foresters do prescribe burning. I know right, with yeah. the, uh, refuges, mm-hmm. they do it all the time. I don't think it's on the scale that it needs to be to prevent these bigger fires. Right. And that's what they talk about. They said, the, so the path forward is it would include more forest thinning, prescribed burning, and indigenous, indigenous cultural burning to try to keep that going. And they said that over time, just a small fraction of what needs to be done is getting done. Mm-hmm. And so it's just not, it's not enough to cover like these huge landscapes. Right, right. If you combine the forest thinning, prescribed burning in areas like with dry ponderosa pine and in dry and moist like conifer forests have been shown it's very effective in Mm -hmm. reducing this fire damage. They're trying to figure it out and they say there's no one size fits all, of course. And it's a lot of money and it's a lot to thin these forests. The end point is like maybe we need more smaller fires to prevent these more giant fires. We need the, the space station from Spaceballs. At the end, she turns into a maid yeah. <laughs> to suck all the air. <laughs> so good. That way, there we go. That's all we need. That's all we need. What's the What's the legend? Uh, Paul Bunyan wasn't oh, he like yeah. a giant? Yeah, Paul Bunyan. Yeah. and his blue ox. Yeah, we need that guy. Yeah, come back and do some thinning and do some raking. mechanical mechanical pulling with his big <laughs> arms. I, I think a bigger piece of that is that I feel bad for everyone who lost homes to fires, and it's just. It's scary. Well, thank you for that science news, Jen. That was... Build a concrete house. <laughs> <laughs> I am so excited. I have no idea what you're going to talk about today. <laughs> I am kind of excited to talk about this. You know, because people were so excited about my ability to pirate speak. Oh. On our previous episode. What were we talking about? Oh, yeah. We would never take a cruise. We'd never take a cruise. And it's you were like, well, I'd go on a pirate ship. <laughs> I would go on a pirate that ship That was pretty still. amazing. Uh, no, this is not a cruise story or a pirate ship story, but it is about a ship. This story came to me from a longtime listener of ours, <laughs> from like the first episode, Christine. Oh, my friend Christine. Christine. Yes. Um, in Hawaii. Your pipetter friend. Yes, my pipetter friend, Christine. And whose dad does the... Homegrown National Park. Yes. Doug Tallamy. Yes. yes. Yeah. So Christine was like, listen, I want you to watch this movie. It's so good. Um, it's a true story. And I was like, all right, I'm going to watch this movie. It's going to be so great. Was it Pompeii? <laughs> <laughs> it was Pompeii. No, her and her husband just recently purchased a boat, like okay. a sailboat. I was like, well, you got to oh, be careful cool. on your sailboat. Because she sent me a picture of her and her kids on the sailboat. I was like, be careful on the sailboat. You know, so many stories. My and- husband and I just had a long talk about the difference between sailboats and trimarans. Because I was like, oh, the trimaran should never <laughs> flip. And he's like, those things always flip that's so dumb it's just that when they flip you can't flip them back over right he's like but sailboats don't flip they just go floop and they come back up yes because they have that heavy bottom that is correct jen and we are going to talk about that today so um i'm going to start out the story it is let me give you a little timeline here it's november 20th 1983 i'm three years old i'm sure i'm years old (laughs) 
Um, <laughs> and it's morning time. Uh-huh. Uh, there's this boat called the Hokusei Maru. It's a research ship. Maru? Like Japanese for sea. This ship is cruising through Hilo Bay off the coast of Hawaii Island. Oh, love it. And they're doing some research on squid in the area. Actually, this is kind of the nature-y part of my story. Oh. This research ship is super cool. It's It's been around 53 years of research as of, I think this article that I read is from like 2002... So much longer now at this point. They do a lot of research in the Pacific, and they also work with uh, University of Hawaii SOAS department. Are they still, like, even now still? That I know of, yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah, so they do work with SOAS, and SOAS is the School of Ocean and Earth Science and Technology at UH Manoa, and I think they have probably have, like, a like an extension thing at UH Hilo. Okay. So anyway, they do a lot of work with these folks. And what they were looking at that morning were this species of squid called the neon flying squid. Cool. Or sometimes called the red flying squid or Akaika. It is, I'm not even going to try to pronounce the Latin name because it's just, over my head. Let's do it. Come on, just give it your, <laughs> oh, give it your best. Oma strepis bartramii. That's good. Hello, you took a Latin. It's probably really bad. In the family, Oma strepidae. All right, so let me tell you a little bit about these squid, because they are kind of interesting. Red flying squid or neon. I like the neon flying squid. It sounds amazing. I mean, if you're telling a story from like 83. Thank you, right? Neon flying squid. Come absolutely, on. absolutely. All right, so these squid have an elongated silver colored band in the middle of their mantle, the uh, ventral side. Tummy side. The tummy side. Uh, males are usually about, 29 to 32 centimeters, a little bit over one foot long. And then adult females are actually larger. There you go. Finally. They're 1.6 feet or 50 centimeters long. The largest one ever recorded was two feet. So That's pretty big. It's pretty big. It's not like giant squid. They have nine to 27 suckers on their ventral sucker series. And then they have 10 to 25 suckers on the dorsal side sucker series. So they've got their little tentacles all around them with like suckers like a skirt. on them. Yeah, like, like a skirt. A sucker skirt. And then they have two longer tentacular clubs. They're the things that kind of like are down uh-huh. further. <laughs> like doing some arm movements here for Jen. Um, and on those, there are four to seven toothed suckers. So they have teeth in the suckers. Neon flying squid are named for their ability to shoot out of the water, just like flying fishes. And they sometimes unintentionally land on the decks of ships. And it happens usually during rough weather or if they're scared of something like there's a predator or there's something that they're creeped out about. Mm -hmm. They're going to respond to that threat by flying out of the water. When they're flying out of the water, when they're like sailing through the air, they actually also continue to try and fly. Like kind of try to flap their with like, all their tentacles. <laughs> I don't know. I guess biologists don't really know why they do this or fully understand how they become airborne or how or why they try to keep flying. Because it's fun. <laughs> they're like, I'm really scared of something, and then they're flying through the air, and they're like, "This is amazing." Flappity flap flap. Why <laughs> I can can't I fly? Maybe they saw a bird one day, and they were like, like, "Oh, that's someday, how you do that." Yeah. Someday I will do this. I wonder how often people get hit with them enough that that yes. people like mention it. We have flying fish here, and mm-hmm. when we're out paddling, inevitably somebody gets hit. You're like a. <laughs> <laughs> So they're found in subtropical and temperate waters of the Pacific Atlantic and Indian Oceans, and they are found in the Mediterranean, but very rarely. They're highly migratory, and they live for about one year, and they spawn all the time. There's no seasonal spawning for them. 
They're just, they're just always they're ready just to do doing it. it. Yeah, because I mean, they only live for a year, so you might as well get yeah. it done ASAP. Yeah. Each female spawns approximately 350,000 to 3.6 million eggs, depending on their size. In their lifetime or uh, each time? Yeah. That's lifetime. Males and females are both presumed to die soon after they spawn. So I guess they, they just do it, do it once. once. But it's there. there's no like season for everybody to do it once. Oh, I get you. It's okay. just any time. But in their life, they only, they only do it once. And then they die. I mean, maybe with smiles on their faces. I don't know. It's not, I mean, spawning between cephalopods or whatever. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's very exciting. Like they just kind of hand over the spermatophores. They're just like, here's my sperms. And the female's like, thank you. And then they're like, and, and then they, they all come out. <laughs> saber. Like that saber. Exactly. And then they just die. I wonder if they're like, don't give me your sperms. I don't want it. I want to live. I want to live forever. I'm going to be the one that's really going to fly. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Hatchlings are about one millimeter in length, but they grow really rapidly, reaching about seven millimeters after a month. Cute. Neon flying squid eat small oceanic fishes like lantern fishes and soury. They are known to engage in cannibalism, and th- so they'll eat smaller members of their own species. Yikes. For this story and and what our organization to support will be later in the story, mm-hmm. this is, I think, the most important part about squid is that lots of things eat them. So swordfish eat them, marlin eat them, tuna eat them, sharks and other marine mammals. And then also people eat them. So they're fished commercially. Mm. So they're a super important part of the food chain mm-hmm. in these marine ecosystems. That's basically about these neon flying fish. They're our species for today. And they are neon. Well, they do have some like bioluminescent qualities they're red. Well, right. that'll go nicely with our next week's episode. I won't tell you any more than that. I read an article which I included in all of my references about what they were doing in 1983 on this boat about the squid. They were actually trying to figure out ways to catch the squid, like the best kind of netting. That's kind of what they were focusing on to this point on the Hokusei Maru. So the ship is like hanging out in this bay and they see a flare go up. A little further off in the distance, they see a 44 foot yacht. And on this yacht is a woman named Tammy Oldham. And she is on her 41st day of being alone at sea. Earlier in that year, 1983 in September, Tammy Oldham, she's 23 years old. She's an American sailor. And she meets this guy. Actually, it was like a few months before that. But she meets this guy in Tahiti. His name is Richard Sharp, an Englishman Mm -hmm. who also is like a sailor. He sometimes sails other people's boats for them. Like she sails boats or she's She's, in the Navy? She's not in the Navy. She's a sailor. She goes on sailboats a lot. She's done a bunch of like kind of random odd jobs. But then she got really into doing this boating deal. Okay. She meets this guy, Richard Sharp, and he's super into boats. And they hit it off and they fall in love. Yeah. It's a love story. They go on a couple trips Mm -hmm. out to sea. They did 30 days across the South Pacific. And then four or five months, they went around the South Pacific Islands. Tammy herself had crossed the Pacific twice. So they both have a lot of sailing experience. And Mm -hmm. they're doing these like voyages together. And they're trying to decide what they're going to do next. And she wants to keep going west Mm -hmm. to like Asia. He gets approached by these people, these British people who own a boat, the Hazana. It's a 44 foot yacht. They're like, hey, can you, Richard, take our boat? Because he knew them from some other yachty thing. I don't know. All these yacht people hang out together probably. Oh, for sure. Yeah. They're like, hey, can you take this boat back to San Diego? We don't want to really sail anymore. We're going to grab flights home. They're like, we'll pay you some incredibly large amount of money. And we'll also give you first class tickets back to Tahiti. 
Oh, and he wow. was like, what about my I'm my girlfriend right here? My like, lady. Um, I don't know if they're engaged by that point. At some point, they get engaged. So he's like, yeah, can I take my fiance with me? <laughs> and they're like, yeah, sure, whatever. Yeah, you don't want to be alone for this thousands of miles from Tahiti to San Diego. So they're like, yeah, do it. Tammy and Richard get on the boat 20 days into their journey. There's a Category 4 hurricane. It has 15 meter waves, 150 mile per hour winds. The Hazana uh, ends up getting pitch pulled, which is rolling over. <gasps> the last thing Tammy remembers before she gets knocked unconscious is Richard up top shouting, oh my God, and then she passes out. Oh no. There's an article that I read a lot from to kind of get her perspective. It was like a kind of question answer interview article. Mm-hmm. She says, I'd been on a t- 123 foot square rigger through the South Pacific for about a year and a half. That was where I learned a lot of my bosun trade, navigation and that kind of thing. So 123 foot square rigger is like a big ass sailboat. FYI, don't know anything about sailing. So I had to look up all this <laughs> Nor business. Do I. Um, a bosun spelled B-O-A-T-S-W-A-I-N, but it's pronounced bosun. Okay. Is the person who's in charge of the deck and crew scheduling. And they're also looking over the engine and mechanical maintenance. They're basically in charge of a lot of shit. Mm-hmm. They also have this little whistle that they use to signal things like all hands on deck. It's mealtime. Oh, when you get a whistle with a job, it's forget about it. And there is a man manual for how to use this whistle it shows you like how to hold it what it looks like how you should wear it you have to always have it on a chain it's like the thing that mr smee plays when captain hook comes a, a deck and, and then he like plays it he's like all hands on deck like that thing like uh-huh. he would be a bosun that sounds amazing which is not the same thing as a first mate right and seafaring folk call these signals that are made by bosun pipes Okay. Or bosun calls. Well, good for her that she's so young and doing that. Yeah. In the 80s, early 80s. Yeah, it seems like a lot of responsibility. And she's a woman. I mean, I'm not trying to say, but it was, yeah, like you're saying, the 80s, typically sailing was like kind of a dude's thing. Yeah. And she was like, I can do it. Yeah. Good for her. And she had the sweet whistle with the instructions. Like, I wanted to be a lifeguard just so I could have a whistle. Now you could be a bosun. <laughs> just to have I'm a good. whistle. <laughs> she says, I love the long passages and going across the oceans, getting into the rhythm, doing the navigation and watching the weather. So she just loves sailing. When they first started this journey 20 days before, it started out really good. She said it wasn't like really great sailing, like downwind sailing where the wind is behind you, just pushing you along and mm-hmm. you're just like hauling ass. Cruising. But it was definitely something that they could manage and they were really enjoying. So two weeks in they're just north of the equator they hear about a tropical depression down by panama they hear a couple days later that the system was coming westerly and it was getting larger and more intense so it's coming like straight for them and so they try to hurry to move to a a more safe area but the hurricane was too quick it had built up way too much momentum Mm -hmm. at that point and she says normally they take a turn and peter out by baja in mexico but it was an el nino year and the water was so warm that it just kept heading west it was going so fast that we couldn't get out of its way and it ended up hitting us big time and then she describes getting caught in the storm which blows my mind she says it's terrifying you can't even fathom it unless you've been through one it's very stressful on the body you're scared for one thing as you don't really know what you're in for and then the complete pounding of the boat we had a little bit of time to prepare we battened things down and taken things off the deck but you're never really prepared for 50 foot seas that's five stories We didn't have any sails up. We just had the engine on and we were going up and over these massive seas becoming airborne and then falling down the back of them. The whole boat would shudder. 
I kept thinking, oh my God, what if one of the portholes go, what are we going to do then? And a porthole is like the little circular window mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In, below the deck. It's like just praying that that boat is strong. Yeah. Was made made well. I think it was in the movie, he's, you know, Richard's character, the guy who plays Richard is like, don't worry, it's just going to roll over. If we, if we capsize, it's okay, because it's going to right itself. So it was kind of like, even though they're going through, he was like, it's going to be fine. <laughs> Everything's going to be fine. So at some point she was up deck with him and they were safety harnessed and kind of just making sure everything was staying together. She says Richard was secured on the cockpit with a safety harness and tether and they felt like they were handling it. They were bobbing up and over these big seas. So Tammy says when Richard took the helm, I sat at the cockpit for a while trying to ease my nerves before he said to go below. Richard didn't have a life jacket on when he was at the helm, which is such a shame. He had taken it off when trying to get in the water and left it down below. It was an overlooked thing. We had a lot to think about. When I went below, I took off my jacket and my life jacket. They were the bulky Mae West type, not like the nice ones we have now and attached my safety harness. Every so often there would be like a wave coming from a different direction, like a big rogue wave. Mm -hmm. And it would make these deeper pockets. And it was almost like shore breakers breaking on the boat. Mm -hmm. So she thinks they got caught in one of those pockets. And he had just told her to go down below. He was like, go down below. It's getting kind of rough. I'm going to stay up here just to make sure everything's cool. I'm tethered. And she gets down below. She's like, right when I get there, I hear Richard scream, oh my God, he saw whatever it was coming towards them. Mm-hmm. Then she says, I felt the boat just drop out from underneath me as we pitch pulled 360 degrees. So capsized end to end, long ways, not short ways. Oh. And she says, that's the last thing I remember. So she's actually out for 27 hours. When she wakes up, she's got a massive gash on her head. In the film, she actually sutures up the things herself. But in actuality, she said she couldn't put a needle through her own skin. Mm-hmm. So she took butterfly closures, put them over there. And, yeah. And, yeah. Just Tried kind to hold of- it together just hold her head together yeah she went up on top of the deck to see where richard was and all she found was a tether with a carabiner still attached but no richard So at this point, she's obviously grieving and she starts to take stock of like her situation. She's like, okay, we have two radios on board. There was a VHF shortwave radio, which means that someone would have to be really close to them to even hear her on that radio. Mm -hmm. And then they also had a single sideband radio, which is a long distance radio. But after so much seawater and stuff, it was like actually not working very well. Tammy says she sent out maydays on the VHF radio. She continued to do this over five days, like for the next five days. But then the water damage to that killed it and she didn't have any more radios so she was never able to reach anybody on any radio because the salt water in any kind of electronics is just gonna a deal breaker yeah, yeah yeah so she did have some safety equipment she had an emergency position indicating radio beacon or an epirb yeah but she couldn't get it to signal and the electrical board inside of it was all corroded so she actually ended up pulling it apart trying to fix it and it was everything was corroded um she didn't have any gps at that time because 1983 yeah i was gonna say 1983 (laughs) oh boy um they did have a satellite navigation system but it had gone out and she says of course weatherproofing in the 80s isn't what it is today so a ton of stuff was just ruined um she did have a life raft she inflated it and secured it on deck 
just in case the boat started sinking. So it is partially submerged because like she took on a lot of water in that flip. Oh, yeah. Even though it flipped right back up Mm -hmm. and, you know, she didn't drown, obviously. There's still a ton of water in there that she's trying to bail out. So when she wakes up 27 hours later, was Mm -hmm. it calm? Yeah. She had already passed everything. I don't think they hit the full storm. I read an article somewhere where it was like they were on the edge of the storm. Well, that's the worst because sometimes going through the middle of a storm, I mean, it's bad. Right. But sometimes it's the edge that get the strongest winds and because it's swirling right and swooping around because we know that here yeah sometimes getting the edge of a storm can be more damaging yes yeah so she had inflated that life raft and then she also noticed that the life raft had canned water food and other small supplies so she actually ended up having a good stock of canned food but it was like caviar and (laughs) (laughs) can you imagine just being completely devastated and alone and eating caviar yeah i'd be like i don't want to eat she had a bunch of sardines beans and stuff like that too and then a bunch of canned water there's this 1983 article from the there's like a Hawaii Tribune. She's quoted as saying, there was also a case of beer and lots of liquor. So she actually is like not too bad stocked. Just gonna get drunk. Right? In the movie, she's vegan. And I don't know if this was true at the time or not. It was like this thing that they presented in the movie as like a challenge that she had to overcome. Mm -hmm. Because she ends up, you know, eating the canned sardines. And then she actually ends up figuring out how to catch fish. She had a spear gun in the movie. But I don't know how much of that is like from her actual story. Right. So she tried to get the engine to go, but one of the mizzen shrouds had melted into a part of the engine. And a mizzen shroud is a line that holds the mass up. And on larger ships, it looks like one of those kids play ladders at a park. Yeah. On a sailboat, it's like a really thick line and it's anchored to the deck from the mass or anchored from the mass to the deck, whatever you want to think about it. She says that the spinnaker pole had been severed in half. So I just had half that pole about nine foot a nine foot pole, three meters. I was able to stick that up into the chain locker on the foredeck and rig it with rope and line. And then I used the one last little sail I had, a really heavy little storm jib. I hung it on its side onto that half of a spinnaker pole and I sailed 1500 miles with that thing. It's amazing what you can do when you have to. I had to go look up all this stuff. A spinnaker pole is the thing that helps guide mostly a spinnaker. So a spinnaker is this big billowy sail out in front of the sailboat. Mm -hmm. So when the sailboat is getting wind from behind, moving downward, it's the thing that pushes out to pull the boat forward. And a spinnaker pole is the thing that kind of like holds it in place and you can move it around and it also helps guide other sails. So it's a way, also a way you can kind of steer. Yeah. You know how like when you're looking at a sailboat, there's like the a big pole that goes across that, you know, a lot of people get knocked off from in movies. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they're like, the jib. I don't know. what the- <laughs> um, But it's like the one that's in front. Okay. So it's like a smaller version of that one kind of holds the sails out to the front mm-hmm. and can be moved however you need to move it and secured. Basically, she had half of that little pole in the front. The big mass in the middle are broken. They're gone. The sails and all of that, they're either gone or tattered or whatever. I don't know. In the movie, they show her trying to take a jib or sail off of the rotors on the back of the boat. Like she goes underwater to try and pull it off. I don't know if that's how they are talking, you know, this whole mizzen thing. I don't know if that's like the part. I know anybody who knows about sailing who's listening They're loving right now, this conversation. They're just like, Ugh. 
Jesus Christ. Just stop already. <laughs> the best way I can explain it is she took that half of a spinnaker pole and there's like that area in the very front of the boat where the anchor chain sits. Yes. Where you like store it. Mm-hmm. And she stuck it down in there. Mm-hmm. And then she took this small extra sail storm jib, which was apparently very heavy and kind of stuck it on. And that was her sail for the whole vessel. Yeah, that's crazy. If somebody was like, let's go sail on this boat and go mm-hmm. do some stuff. After doing this podcast, I'd be like, yeah, no, I'm not. If you want to sail inside a bay, like very close to the shoreline, yes. into it. Are we going outside anywhere? No, I'm good. I'm good. All of her experience mm-hmm. to be alone on a yacht after that. I guess, I mean, I'm just saying she, the right she's the right person. Even going through the grief that she's probably going through. Mm-hmm. She's injured, like her head. Oh. That's a definite the massive concussion. Somehow she's functioning to get this done. She's got yeah. youth on her side too. This is true. The biggest problem that she had at this moment was that when the storm came, they were already someplace between Hawaii and California, but she didn't know what longitude she was at. She figured out where her latitude was. So luckily she had a sextant with her. Like that's that nautical device that is basically like a protractor. It has like a thing that hangs yeah, down and things, you can look through it. Those are old school. Like I saw them using that when I was watching Outlander. Yes. <laughs> so exactly. She has this sextant. She has some sight reduction tables for air navigation. And so she's actually able to navigate using the sun. She can only find latitude though using mm-hmm. that. So she mm-hmm. needs a watch to tell her what time it is so that she can figure out what her longitude is. Because you calculate longitude from Greenwich. Yes. Um, and where the sun is. Yeah. Okay. So, and I'm sure she was probably like, okay, well, I guess I'm just gonna make a sundial and figure it out. And the problem is that she knows that she's on the 19th latitude. She figures out that she would have to go up and take a left to mm-hmm. go to Hawaii from where she's at. But she's really worried because she doesn't know exactly where her longitude is. And if she overshoots Hawaii, there's nothing between Hawaii and then Japan. That's like certain death. So she's like, okay, what am I going to do? I mean, I guess if you're, yeah, if you're far north enough of us, there's pretty much nothing. And a lot of storms up there. She said, I couldn't find my watch anywhere. And you just have to have the correct time to get longitude. So I was just going to sail by latitude. I headed up to the 19th latitude and hung a left, just hoping that was going to get me to Hawaii. A week into it, I was able to get most of the water out of the boat. And there was my watch at the bottom of the bilge. Once I got my watch, it changed everything because then I could find my longitude. So Wow, that watch lasted in the water? I want to know. 1983? What kind of watch was that? Well, I mean, she had to have like, I mean, if she's, she some sails. Kind of, some kind of divey watch. She had like, to have a good watch. It had to be like a most weatherproof ever at that time. In 1983, I think I had my first watch ever. Was it a Mickey Mouse watch? It was not. Like a swatch? We didn't have enough money for a swatch. <laughs> Those were really expensive <laughs> at the time and super cool. It was like a digital watch. Yeah, yeah. But I remember the alarm for it played Edelweiss. What? Yeah, so it'd go dee 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 dee. Wow. I bet that wasn't annoying at all. I didn't think so, but I'm sure everyone in my world thought it was. In the middle of class, I'm like, oh, sorry. Um, it's my watch. It's my watch. It's uh, I need to go drink some water at the water fountain. I'll be it's right back. It's really important. <laughs> to stay hydrated. She also was super lucky because she ended up hitting the North Equatorial Current. She describes it as it's like a freight train. It goes about six knots at a time. So she wasn't like fighting any current. She didn't really have to worry about if her sail was going to work very well. Because with that little sail, she could only go like two to three knots mm-hmm. at a time. So Tammy also 
wrote in a log for the time that she was on the boat. She tried to keep a record of what day it was. She tried to keep track of all the things that were happening to her, how she was feeling and all of that, because she wanted to make sure that if she died, if something happened and she dies, that there was like a record for her family so they would know what happened to her. Mm -hmm. So she made sure to take kind of like meticulous notes. Hopefully she's sailing to Hawaii, doing all the navigation things with the papers and the stuff and math. She had to do math with a concussion. I don't even know. Just reading articles about how to figure out how to sail in different directions Uh based on, you know, maps and the sextant and the sun. I'm like, nope. I've just been like, I don't know. That's what I'm saying. She was 23. And I think she was really counting on hitting something that would be pulling her more towards Hawaii because I think it would have taken her much longer to get to California. Did she grow up sailing? No. Like, did her parents sail? Like, how did she learn all this? No, I didn't get like too much background information on her. She does eventually write a book, which I'll mention. In the movie, well, her mom is described as being kind of like a hippie love child almost, like kind of like out there. A little Mm -hmm. bit spacey. It seems like Tammy is the kind of person enjoys traveling and like kind of adventuring and just she would just have like a job wherever she could find one. She's Peace Corps material. For sure. Yeah, just getting jobs on boats and learning all that stuff. That's so cool. So she was born in 1960. Oh, yeah. Her mom was like early hippies. At this point, she's gotten through that like initial part of the emergency situation where she's had to figure stuff out. And now she has a routine and she's kind of falling into a little bit more of the grief mm-hmm. of her experience and she's really alone all the time now mm-hmm. and it starts to take a toll on her she says reading back over it later my mind was so fragile i went all over the place being out there for so long when i didn't have any wind i blame satan I prayed a lot. I'm not really a religious person. I believe in the universe and higher powers, but I did pray a lot. I wanted to live. I don't want to like a spoiler alert anyone. The movie was made in 2018. Is it a spoiler alert? Maybe not. She has a very vivid hallucination of saving Richard and nursing him back to health. His voice is kind of like this guiding part of getting her through the whole ordeal. But in actuality, Tammy says the visions or hallucinations of Richard. They weren't as vivid as the movie depicts, but I really felt him right there with me the whole time. The air was thick with his presence. I wanted to show that in the movie. Oh, I bet he Mm -hmm. was there with her. She also kept a pillow with his shirt, a guitar that he would play, and she would sleep with his shirt. And she said she never touched the line that he departed from. She said, I always had the line on the cleat there. I would just sit and talk with him. I would hear him encouraging me. She would constantly search for him while she was on the boat, like out in the horizon. Was he out on the horizon in the water? Even she said when she got back to shore, she would look for him in crowds. They never recovered his body. There's no closure. It was like very difficult for her to move on from that. She would have so many what ifs. What if he grabbed onto some piece of something, you know, or floated up somewhere? Right, right. Around day 39, Tammy was really on the mental brink. And this is the day that she considers suicide. So trigger warning for people. On that day, she thought that she could see an island and she wasn't sure if she was hallucinating, but then clouds rolled in and she couldn't see anything anymore. Then there's this military plane that flies over her. It was actually really low and she shoots off a flare, but they don't see her. They just keep flying. And this is the third time actually that she's seen another vessel. So she saw two ships before that and they never saw her. She shot 
lot of flares. Luckily, she has a lot of flares. They never see her. I feel like in a lot of these survival stories, there's like this moment where they're so close to being saved and something's so close to them and then it doesn't happen. And it's so debilitating. Mm -hmm. And she went to get the rifle that was on board and she actually places it in her mouth like she was going to kill herself. She was like, I can't do this anymore. I think the anxiety of not knowing if she was going to hit Hawaii or not or where she was really, if she was even doing the math right, all of that. It was like all this anxiety and grief and pressure and sadness. She said, I was going to end it, but Richard's voice was saying, no, no, don't do that. You're almost there. Go out and look. And so she went back out and sure enough, the clouds had moved and there was an island in the distance. That just gave me goosebumps. So she sees the island and she thinks, oh my God, I gotta get, I gotta pull it together. I have to get there. Yeah. There had to have been a moment of like triumph after this. It's like the lowest point. I feel like everybody in these survival stories gets to their lowest point and then there's like a moment of triumph. Yeah. <laughs> you know, where it's like, oh my God, thank you. You know, And that should be something that everybody should think about. Just whenever you're at your lowest, know that there'll always... Something is around the Something corner. Something is around the corner. Yes. So hang in there. One thing she realized from being in solitary confinement, essentially on a she says on a piece of floating fiberglass was how much we need human contact without that when you're alone your mind just plays all sorts of tricks on you but she had a really strong survival instinct she didn't want to die even though she felt all this grief for losing Richard she felt like he was also rooting her on helping her get through this she said it's harder to lie back and hope somebody rescues you because she's a more proactive person than that and she's glad that she is that way because mm-hmm. nobody was out there to, to rescue her or help her there was also like this inner voice in her that wasn't necessarily Richard and she wouldn't think like God or anything like that but it was like a force that was like pushing her ahead in all of these stories we talk about people with perseverance and mm-hmm. that just like internal drive to live at the time that all of this is happening to her over the days her mother is in San Diego because she's from San Diego. Her mom knew she was coming. And when they were like a few, like maybe a week out or something, she had like contacted her mom somehow. I don't know if it was before they left or if they were actually on the boat before the storm that she had contacted her mom to say like, hey, everything's good. We're just checking in, whatever. But her mom's in San Diego. And at the time of the storm, her mom doesn't know that there's a storm. She doesn't know anything about what's happening to her or if that she's missing or anything like that. She starts having bad dreams about Tammy. Oh, that's right, mom. (laughs) She said in her dreams, she saw, quote, a guy outside on a boat looking through a portal. It was blurry. I saw Tammy and she had something red on her head, a gash. Oh, my God. I know. See, hippie mom. (laughs) I'm not even like, you know, a believer in some of this stuff, but I was like, oh, but you know I am. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So her mom actually started visiting the Coast Guard office every day asking about her daughter. Have they heard from her on the radio? What's going on? Can they signal her? Whatever. Like I said, she didn't know about the her. Hurricane, she just had a bad feeling that something had happened. I wonder what her mom looked like in 1983. Just like a lot of hair. A lot of like. hair and some like a lot of bangles, jewelry. A lot of bangles. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm thinking of like Mrs. Roper from, <laughs> from Three's Company. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like a... Please those, let it be that. Not an Afghan. What are the... Like, like those house dresses? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> On November 20th, 1983 at 1 a.m., Tammy arrives off the coast of Hawaii Island. But she decides she's going to wait until daylight before she goes into the Hilo Harbor. And I'm like, why would you wait? I don't know why she decided to wait. Well, maybe because going, you know, going in, you have to be able to see, see things. You need, yeah, you yeah. need to see the, the reef. Because I mean, if not, she could crash on the reef. Good call. I didn't think about that. <laughs> yeah, that's one thing I do know. <laughs> so at dawn, she sees 
the Japanese vessel Hokusei Maru, the research vessel, who are looking at squid, and she fires her flare into the sky. They see her. They're, they're like, like, that wasn't a flying squid. <laughs> they were like, what? what is happening right now? They see her ship. It's got to look, I mean, because it's not fully floating like it should be. It's still half sunk, makeshift mast. Yeah. And this woman who is just... She's looking like... Tom Hanks and Castaway, but female Definitely. version. The female yeah. version. Mm-hmm. They towed her boat to the harbor breakwater, and then they had called the Coast Guard, and Coast Guard comes out, and they brought her to shore. And one of the Coast Guard re- rescuers says, the lady has some guts. A little more than that. Right. She's got some brains, and she's got some awesomeness. I just can't imagine. I mean, most people at 23 are so stupid. I'm thinking about I mean, me I was like, <laughs> oh my God. Like, what was I, I would have been dead. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> I would have been like, okay, there's the beer. Let's just get it over with. (laughs) Yeah. At 23, what was I even doing? Oh, I was in school, but still. I mean, I was getting ready for Peace Corps at the time, but still, I, 23 was like not the best time. No. I think I thought I knew a lot. It was false confidence. God love you. Some, I mean, sometimes they do. It's she true. did. She did. Yeah. Yeah. Despite being at sea for 41 days, she was in actually pretty good shape because she had all of that food and water that lasted her. And she had the canned water, but then in the movie, I don't, again, don't know if this is entirely true. Part of her water tank still had fresh water in it and she was able to use the water from the water tank tank well that's how it was in the trimaran they still were Had able little, to yeah yeah so she was able to pump it up and drink water when the boat capsized she hit her head so hard her concussion was so bad she couldn't read a book for the next six years what? the the words would leap off the page every time she tried to focus on them which means that the whole time that she's been on the boat doing these math calculations reading all of the things writing in her journal she's had to deal with not being able to keep things in focus Wow. To me, that makes this story like even more mind blowing that she made it to Hawaii because she couldn't physically, you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. it was so difficult for her and somehow she like pushed past that and just did it. That was her guardian angel. That was Richard. I know you don't believe in those stuff, <laughs> but I do. I'm going to just say that in the movie, there's a point around the time that she's taught uh, this kind of suicide part that they do in the movie. Mm-hmm. He's there with her and then she realizes she's strong enough to go on and he just kind of like fades away like he's not there when you look back and she kind of says goodbye to him i cried like a freaking baby i was like because i kept kind of like i mean it's like you kind of know they give you clues in the beginning that he didn't make it but you kind of are like oh maybe he did make it you know like oh like i was about to start crying right now (laughs) i was really hoping that he made it they did a good job of telling their little love story anyway i'm a little bit Vaclimped. You're a little vaclimped right now. It's is it is it kind of like I see dead people movie? It's not so twisty. Okay. Yeah, I definitely when I you watch it, the very first scene is like a body kind of floating down in the water, and so you're like, oh, he died. Yeah, and then he's there, and, and you're he's like, there, what? and you're like, wait, did he? How did he make it back up? Like that's weird. Like some of the dialogue is like very foreshadowy. It's not so twisty. I definitely bought into it. They did a good job on that movie. One of the worst things besides the whole concussion deal. In an article from the Hawaii Tribune Herald, the 1983 article, she actually, they they have a picture of her at a local salon. They're getting the mats out of her hair because she said that she never worried about her hair at all. You know, she didn't try to like pull it up or anything like that. 
Actually, I kept wondering when I was watching the movie, I was like, how come she doesn't pull her hair back? I don't know why I think about that. Because it's lot. the 80s. In survival things, I'm just like, just pull your hair back, Jen, in the future. If we're <laughs> ever in a survival situation. Always have a hair tie. You will have to have an extra hair tie for me. Or I'm just going to figure out a way to cut it off. I don't think I can handle all my hair all over my face. It's a weird thing to think about, but there should be like a little level of comfort. It makes you feel better. And I just kept thinking about her hair. But now I realize that it was on purpose because when she got to Hilo, she had matted hair in reality. Did they just cut it or did they just take them out? In the picture and in the article, they just said they brushed it out. And I'm like, don't do any more bad stuff to this woman's head. It's like like our Peace Corps friend, Lisa. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yeah. When she was doing her master's, right? She just didn't brush her hair. She was busy. She just had to get it cut off. A giant dread. That was right before Peace Corps, too. Oh, yeah. She had short hair. Yeah, yeah. We love you, Lisa. Things you don't think about. Um, She struggled with grief and nightmares for a long time. Oh, I bet. Almost eight years it took her to kind of like get through the process of healing. It was around that time that she started to write down her experience and eventually finished her book. It's called Red Sky in Mourning, like M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. Mm-hmm. Colon, A True Story of Love, Loss, and Survival at Sea. She self-published that in 1998, and then it was later published by Hyperion Press in 2002. In 2018, it was made into a movie. That movie is called Adrift. Oh, I think I've heard of it. Yeah. Okay. It has this one actress in it who I don't really like, Shaylee something or other. I'm not like a huge fan of hers, but she did an amazing job. Like I really liked her in this movie. Tammy says that she never went into counseling, but wishes someone would have suggested it. Quote, I definitely had some severe post-traumatic stress syndrome. I really wish I had taken the time to do that counseling. That's what she told the Chicago Tribune. Years after her accident, she took the ring that Richard had given her in Tahiti when they got engaged. She attached it to a rose and put it out to sea oh my god that just gave me goosebumps again i think that would be really hard i wouldn't want to give it up i think she just had to move on she had to have that closure she still sails boats today Uh Um, she told the chicago tribune i just love it i'm passionate about it i kind of parallel the hurricane to being in a car accident you get back in the car or like they say back on the horse she went on to become a hundred ton licensed captain with more than fifty thousand offshore miles wow in 1994 she got married to a man named edward Ashcroft. So her name now is Tammy Oldham Ashcroft. Mm -hmm. They had two daughters, Brooke and Kelly. I don't know if they still live there, but they were living on San Juan Island in Washington. Oh, beautiful place. This is a like kind of a horrible story about one of her daughters. Oh, yeah. So she goes through all of that. Um, She has her two daughters. And then in 2017, her daughter Kelly died of carbon monoxide poisoning. I think it's her, maybe in her boyfriend, Troy Sullivan, and her sister Brooke was in the house. So they were in another house. I don't know if it was on the same property, but there was a faulty heater connection, Mm. something, and Kelly and the boyfriend Troy died. So what they say is, Brooke awoke with a throbbing headache, was dizzy, and had great difficulty walking. When she went to find out why no one had answered for her, so she was calling out to her sister, Kelly, and Sullivan, she found them unconscious. She called 911, began to perform CPR. Brooke ended up getting hospitalized for carbon monoxide poisoning, but Kelly and Troy both died from the exposure. Troy's parents Mm -hmm. filed a lawsuit for wrongful death against Tammy and her husband uh, because her husband Edward had actually worked on the heating system and they were saying that he was the one who didn't put it together correctly and caused it. And I'm like, Jesus. I mean, his own daughter died. Yeah. 
And they tried to sue him for both their son and his own daughter. Oh, my gosh. It was just, I mean, I'm reading about it. It got dismissed. Uh I don't know. It seems like maybe they settled or something happened, um, but they it got dismissed from court. That happens a lot. That's super messed up. That's why if you live in places where you use heaters and whatnot, you need to have those carbon monoxide detectors detectors that alert if it gets too high. Wow, that's terrible. Gosh, I think she almost lost both her daughters. So she does give some advice for sailors this is all going to be kind of like a long quote i've been doing a lot of quotes in this just because i like that she did a lot of interviews and really talks about well and it's always she went through it's always nice to hear from directly from that person yeah Mm -hmm. advice for sailors the first one is don't mess with mother nature study the weather because mother nature is much bigger than we are that's one of the most important things i can say with today's technology, you can get up-to-date weather reports and marine weather faxes. I don't know when the, she said that. Faxes. Uh, in 1983, we could only get the weather every three hours. Also, now electronics are so much better and waterproof. Make sure you've got good gear on board, top-of-the-line harnesses, life jackets. She said, we were using the owner's harnesses. We didn't bring our own. That was kind of a bummer because I don't know if that would have made any difference or not as far as Richard's falling. While we all rely on electronics and batteries for GPS and handheld radios and all that, I tell you that sextant saved my life. Even if it's a plastic sextant, I always say that if you're going to do some ocean crossings, make sure there's a sextant on board with the relevant tables, because in the end, if all the batteries go, you have that to fall back on. And that's what saved my life. And to remember what got her home, Tammy wears a triangular shaped sextant pendant encrusted with a diamond. Well, good old old school technology. Um, So that is the story of Tammy Oldham. And uh, her 41 days at sea. I do have uh, an organization to support. Okay. A kind of a roundabout way. So, I mean, I know Christine, who suggested this story to mm-hmm. me from UH. And I'm trying to remember if her husband works for SOEST. <laughs> anyway, I thought that was a neat connection. Yeah. And I was like, we should support fisheries. Because fisheries, science, and conservation, I don't know. I really feel like it's important to look at what's happening in our fisheries today. Yes. Yeah. So many people in this world depend on fisheries for food, but our oceans are just, they're getting depleted. That squid that this boat was studying is a big part of that food chain. Those larger marine mammals, sharks, tuna, marlin, all of that, that are a big part of commercial fisheries that are being depleted. I think it's a part of all of that. Yep. And so I would like to support the American Fisheries Society. It is a world world's oldest and largest organization dedicated to strengthening the fisheries profession, advancing fisheries science, and conserving fisheries resources. It's a lot of fisheries. It includes 8,000 members from around the world, including uh, fisheries managers and biologists, professors, ecologists, aquaculturists, economists, engineers, geneticists, and social scientists. They promote scientific research and sustainable management of fisheries resources, and they publish in some of the world's leading fish journals. They encourage comprehensive education and professional development for fisheries professionals. That's pretty cool. I feel like that there's a lot of work happening in fisheries. I work with those people sometimes with with turtles. Yeah, there's a lot of marine biologist friends that they will not eat fish. It's a bad news out there. So, Jen, yes, it is that time of our episode where we talk about the emergency preparedness kit. So I have a little bit of not sailing, but a little bit of boat knowledge, boat knowledge, I guess, <laughs> from growing up on a lake. My grandparents had a houseboat since yes. before I was born. I just remember one of the best things on the boat, other than just family and doing all the stuff and fishing and playing and water skiing and all that stuff, was that they had this kick-ass eight-track system. <laughs> 
There was constantly some tunes blasting, <laughs> right. like some Neil Diamond. Well, mostly country, but I mean, like, you know, the good old country. Mm-hmm. Like, you yeah. know, some Johnny Cash and Conway Twitty. Waylon Jennings. Come on. <laughs> so, I mean, this is Oklahoma. So, of course, we had those things. So, I'm just thinking, like, 1983... Mm-hmm. was a huge year for music. Let me just tell you, I looked it up. <laughs> oh, no. Let me tell you some, just a few. Let me just yeah, throw out a yeah, few. Yeah. We had David Bowie, China Girl. Oh, wow. These were the hits. Billy Joel, tell her about it. I'm not going to sing these, even though in my head, it's it's our house. Oh, oh God. wow. I mean, come on. Total Eclipse of the Heart. If you wanted some country, Kenny, Kenny Rogers came out with We've Got Tonight. Too Shy. Come on. I mean, it just goes the on. The hits Affair. keep coming, Jim. Rick Springfield, Affair of the Heart. Shut the front door. I know. Sweet Dreams. Freaking uh, Eurythmics. This is 1983 alone, and the list keeps going. And it, you know every one of these. Mr. Roboto. Sticks is my jam. I forced Jen to listen to Sticks. That's just a glimpse. If she had... <laughs> A waterproof eight-track system and or tape player would have been even better. But I mean, we are talking 1983 here. Tapes were around, but the eight-tracks were going strong. (laughs) She really, yeah, I think you're right. Needed some tunes. She needed some. These tunes right here, everything I've just said, just stop it. I mean, it would have helped break up the grief a little. You know, total eclipse of the heart, feel it. I'm still standing, get you there. Like, giving you the power. I feel like that could have been what she needed. The mental side. It's a mental health right there i don't know why that boat didn't have an eight track system maybe it did maybe it didn't it got damaged i'm saying whatever you needed to have to make some sort of waterproof cassette player or eight track player i love it that's what she needed she needed some 80s tunes so we're saying a a waterproof eight track with a great 80s mix yeah a top hits from 1983 we should just make a playlist (laughs) i'm like almost in tears over this playlist oh my god over these songs this is so emotional for you i feel like you don't get very emotional very often (laughs) this is kind of hilarious to me this is really this is really getting to me thanks for that great story yeah taking us back to the 80s and for just like another like awesome lady yeah survival story Ladies getting it done. If you have any stories for Peace Corps Week, I noticed some people commenting on our shit your pants post <laughs> yeah. the other day. That really spoke to people yeah, somehow. Apparently. Yeah. I love it. I know you do. Send us some stories. We'll put them in. If you have friends who were Peace Corps volunteers, have them uh, reach out to us. You're gonna die out there at gmail.com. I just wanted to give a quick shout out mm-hmm. to my nephew in Arizona. His name is Sawyer and my sister and his younger sister named Joselle. And they love listening to our podcast. Oh, my God. He has given a special request for us to talk yeah. about those little amphibians. Ocelot. Yeah. With the kind of like appendage deals around their head. Yeah, I mean, they're super cool looking, but critically endangered in the wild. I wanted him to know that I'm still looking for the right story or science news. But just so he knows that I didn't forget. Would you like to have the honor of giving our shout out to our new patron? Sure. Thank you so much, Brian, for joining our Patreon family. Yeah, thanks, Brian. That's awesome. And if you would like to become a patron, check out our website, click on our Patreon link, or you can go to our link tree on Instagram and check out our Patreon that way. Other ways you can support, subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. If you give us a five-star review, we'll send you a sticker, possibly two if you send us pictures of your pets. Fill out the contact form on our website, or you can just email us at you're gonna die out there at gmail.com and send me your mailing address. It's that easy. You can also support us by checking out our sponsor links on our website sponsor page. All of our sponsors are eco-friendly, zero waste. You will get discounts using our discount codes and the links that we provide. And you can also support us by following 
following us on Instagram or Twitter and listening on any platform like Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Oh, and if you have ideas for stories or you saw some interesting news or some science news, feel free to send us an email or send us a DM on Instagram. And until next time, don't die out there. Bye. I don't know if you remember, but I mean, if they only they would have listened to Trump after that big fire, he was saying that you just needed to get your broom and sweep the forest. I mean, they're really dirty. Look at all this leaf litter. Everybody get a broom. So many leaves. Get your blower out. Whatever. We could just suck it all up and just go (laughs) dump it on his golf course in Florida. There you go. Marlago. What is it called? Marlago. Yeah. (laughs) We're not political. That's probably one of my favorite things to talk about on this podcast. <laughs> I know. It's Guam flipping over. We, we talk about it a lot because yeah. it's just politics and <laughs> science. Yeah. <laughs> but we're just broken in half. <laughs> um, all right. So her biggest... <laughs> I just got what you said. We would have just broken, broken in, in half. half. <laughs> <laughs> so true. <laughs> Edelweiss. <laughs> I'm a thousand years old. <laughs> they did a really good movie. A really good job on this movie. They did a really good movie. They did a really. <laughs> you did a really good it was movie. So good. <laughs> I want to talk about real quick that she said bummer a, a few times in the article, and it just made me like giggle a little bit because eighties. Because eighties. <laughs> It is a bummer. Anyway. It's all a big bummer.